So a while back, uh, Jody and I, my wife, were traveling, and we were in a different city, and a friend of a friend invited us to come and stay with them. This is a couple that we had been getting to know. Um, we'd maybe shared a dinner or two together, and now we were in this city, and they invited us to come and, and stay at their place. And uh, so we went, we went over to the house and um, felt very blessed to have a place to stay that night. Um, Jody and the wife went off shopping, and... The husband and I sat down uh, in the room and began to have a conversation, kind of a spiritual conversation, and uh, he, was, he was interested in, you know, really kind of diving deep and ha- having a real conversation, and um, he started talking about uh, sort of a, a view of the Old Testament. He was kind of, you know, promoting this conception of, of how to read the Old Testament that, um, that I knew about. And I knew was not founded, was not grounded in, in good scholarship. And uh, he was pretty intense about it, pretty, pretty excited. And I was imagining that it might be the case that the rest of our night would be talking about this. And I asked myself, I, I said, you know, um, it's kind of one of those moments. You know, you have these moments where you're thinking, uh, okay, so either I can nod and say yes, and we can have like a, a, a kind of a phony relationship that's not really grounded in truth. Or I can, you know, just say what I really think. And I, I kind of waited, maybe prayed a little bit and thought, okay, what am I going to do? And I thought, you know, I really like this guy and I want to have a real relationship with this guy. So I'm, I'm going to try to gently just sort of dive in here and, and have a conversation. And so as gently as I could, I just sort of pushed back a little bit on what he was saying and uh, thought, well, let's see what happens here. Now, let me just warn you, this is where the story gets weird. Okay, uh, as you can probably imagine, maybe you've experiencing something, experienced something like this in your life. In fact, um, it gets weird and it gets difficult, and then it gets really good. So just hang with me for a second. Uh, okay, so he he kind of got upset that I would push back uh, on this topic. In fact, he, he he got really upset about it. Somehow, I had touched a nerve, and um, he started to you know come on pretty strong, um, like like yelling strong. Uh, and, you know, I started to feel like I'm in a parallel universe here, right? You know, like, what is happening? Um, and then it became like sort of pacing around the living room strong. Um, and it went on for quite some time, probably 30 minutes or so. And I'm wondering, am I going to have to, like, leave the house and go sleep on the curb? Um, you know, what is, what's going on here? And finally, I, I, I was praying like crazy. And this is what came into my mind. My, what came to mind was kneel down. Kneel down. So I knelt down in the living room and just prayed. And I don't know if it was the Holy Spirit or my posture of submission or what it was, but uh, he started to calm down, came down, sat right next to me, then knelt down with me and said, I'm sorry. You know, something, something you said touched a nerve um, and uh, kind of I was off to the races. We got up, we went into the backyard, it was a nice evening out. We probably spent the next two hours unpacking what had happened in the room. And come to find out, and he shared all this with me, he shared things with me in those two hours I think that he hadn't shared with anybody in his life. He shared with me how he'd grown up in a family that was abusive, physically and emotionally. He shared with me uh, the journey that he'd had with a number of churches 
and kind of the relationship that he'd had with pastors and the brokenness there. And so this whole thing ultimately wasn't about me, right? Uh, I was the stand-in for experiences that he'd had in the past. Um, and at the end, I was able, God was able to, to speak some beautiful truths. And I felt like, the, you know, it was one of those crazy things where, where God was at work in somebody's life. And, and, you know, maybe you've had this experience. Even the things that I was saying didn't seem like they were necessarily even coming from, from me completely. That, that the Holy Spirit was at work and, and providing the insight. And we ended up, again, just in a deep season of prayer towards the end of that night. And it was a time of healing of some brokenness that had gone on for decades and decades uh, in his life. And uh, I cherished that ultimately. It was a sweet, sweet time. Um, He said to me in a text the next day, he said, Your compassion and kindness is beyond words of thanks. Truly only a man who can hear the still small voice of God could have heard God talking to him over me. And he went on to say some other dramatic things um, and beautiful things. It was a beautiful encounter, ultimately, and life-changing. But it had its moments, right? And here's the thing that connects to our text today. That what, what took us to that place was a desire to have an honest relationship. Was a desire for truth. A desire not to have kind of a phony conversation, but one where we were pursuing together what's really true uh, about life and about the world that God has made. And we find that to be the case over and over again. The specific verse that we're focusing on today within the passage that was read for us is verse 6. And it reads like this. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And so today we're going to talk about the relationship between love and truth. There's an important relationship here, and I'm hoping and praying, been praying all week, that we can sort of unpack that together and walk out of here with a deeper sense of the goodness of God and his grace in love and in truth. So I have two questions for us. My first one's going to be, what is truth? Somebody else famously asked that question of Jesus, right? Uh, What is truth and how do we uh, rejoice in it? Uh, The answer to these questions is going to help us, I think, uh, you know, love even when it's difficult. Even when it's difficult. So I think I changed it. I said, how do we rejoice in it? I think we're going to get more to the why do we rejoice in it. So what is truth and why do we rejoice in it? So let's jump in. What is truth? And we're going to look at this against the backdrop of the passage that we're studying, and then also against the backdrop of the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul's writing to a particular church who's addressing and dealing with certain uh, circumstances, and those provide some of the background for understanding what truth is in this setting. So we're going to have to kind of go back a little bit in time and, and, and think, uh, also put on, you know, a, sort of a, a cultural understanding how we often think about truth. So, so let's just spend a few minutes doing that, and then we'll bring some application about how to really pull that forward into our lives right now. So, um, we, you know, we would usually say that the opposite of truth is falsehood, right? I mean, most 
modern Western people, as we like to refer to the kind of culture that we uh, are in um, and, and some of us have grown up in or, or become accustomed to. Most of us would say that the opposite of truth is falsehood. But in this text, it's interesting that Paul makes a contrast between wrongdoing and truth. Wrongdoing and truth. The word there for wrongdoing is adikia. It's unrighteousness. It could also be translated injustice or wickedness or evil. And ever since, you know, the Enlightenment, since Descartes, we tend to view everything through the lens of thought. Like, how do you think? Um, so when we hear the word truth, we will tend to think of it cognitively. Um, the opposite of truth is falsehood. But the Hebrew mind had a, kind of a, a more holistic understanding of truth, and that's why this might seem to us a little bit different, um, and, and why Paul makes this contrast between wrongdoing and truth. Truth isn't just thinking about thinking accurate things. It's not just facts and thinking accurate things. Truth in the Hebrew context, in the biblical context, um, is about also doing right things. There's, a, there's an active element to truth. It, it's, sort of, it's sort of what you think and what you do and everything in between. It's, it's much more holistic. And so uh, it refers not just to correct thinking, but also moral living. So truth in this passage, against the backdrop of wrongdoing, is doing what is morally right. Doing what's morally right. So we want to think about truth. It's about doing what is morally right. Not just simply thinking accurate things. And remember what the Corinth church, the Corinthian church was struggling with. And Paul, the Apostle Paul was trying to root out. They had, uh, they had divisions, right? Um, they had sexual brokenness. Uh, a man was sleeping with his stepmother. There were misunderstandings about how to respect and support each other uh, on issues of conscience. So they were trying to figure out what to do with food sacrifice to idols. And, and Paul was helping them to understand what the loving thing was to do in that context where you really had an issue of conscience. And, and what that means simply is that people, were gonna, people who love the Lord were going to come down on different sides on the issue. And they were going to view it in different ways. So he was encouraging them to love in that context. And then there was this failure to take care of those who had less than. When they gathered in worship, um, they would, you know, those who had would eat these feasts and those who didn't have would, would just have nothing. And they weren't sharing with one another. So they weren't loving each other in that practical, active kind of way. So for Paul, these are all in the category of wrongdoing. And he was calling them to truth, to, to, to love being truth, which is acting in a moral way, acting in a loving way towards others. In fact, you can translate this word truth um, that we have here in the text uh, also as faithfulness. And that captures the, the love plus action element for it, faithfulness. Um, so truth is faithfulness. It's doing what's morally right. Truth is faithfulness. And love rejoices in the faithfulness of God's people when they live out, uh, live in, the, in, in accordance with his commands. But then in the background of the passage, so we've got, we've got the background of the Corinthian church and then how you can translate this word truth and faithfulness. And then you've got the whole context of this passage, which is about love. And it's about a particular kind of love, agape love. 
And if we look at the word truth through that lens, we even get a little bit more fuller kind of perspective. So just a, a little bit of a sort of biblical understanding here. The Bible has four different terms for love. And uh, one of our elders, Anglic, gave me this great chart. So let's put up this chart here. Um, I'm afraid it's a little bit small. Um, it's a little bigger there. But um, the different kinds of, of love are eros, the sensual, romantic love, storge, which is familial love. And there's the picture there you can see. Uh, philia, which is brotherly love. Uh, and then agape, which is God's, it's really God's love for human beings as it's manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. And the kind of love that Paul is talking about throughout this entire passage is agape love. And so when he talks about love rejoicing in the truth, um, we could see the framework of that to be the love of God for human beings as expressed in the person of Jesus Christ. So, so truth is, you can go to the next slide, truth is the perfect love of God. It's the perfect love of God as manifest in Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's truth. That's the kind of truth that Paul is referring to in this sort of global conception of truth. So rejoicing in the truth is rejoicing in the gospel as well. And then lastly, just to throw up one more kind of angle on truth, um, and this is, a, this is kind of looking more broadly to the, to the entire New Testament and, and even beyond. In John 14, 6, we have this incredible statement by Jesus, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus himself, he calls himself the truth, which is phenomenal. In fact, for me, this was a huge part of my journey of faith. Coming to faith in Jesus Christ was a big part of that, was understanding that truth ultimately is not merely a proposition. That always fell flat with me. I, I couldn't, I could, because it just feels like it's too easy to manipulate words. When it came to understand that ultimately truth isn't a proposition statement, but it's a person, Jesus Christ. You know, that, that, that suddenly reorders everything and makes, oh, you know, you know, God, God doesn't live up to truth. God is truth. And truth comes from the living God. So we've got to get all of this in the, in the right order to be able to understand it. Now, so which of these is Paul emphasizing as he calls us to rejoice in love? Which of these is he, is he really digging into? They're all there in the background of this text. They're all part of the story that Paul is living, that the church in Corinth is living. They're all there in the midst of it. So which one, what are we supposed to focus on? And, you know, what happens with the Bible in some cases, and it's beautiful when this happens, it's almost like if the Bible is a camera, it sort of moves back to this, this wide-angle perspective and just gives you this global picture of these really profound concepts like truth. And that's what I think Paul is doing throughout this entire passage. He's talking about truth in all of that sense. He's just talking about truth. And he's saying that love rejoices in it all. Love rejoices in this incredible 
aspect of God's creation called truth. If you go to the very end of the passage and, and it was read for us, we see this, this really global statement. Now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So we're in the realm of the big picture, sort of the, the, the camera is pulled all the way back to the wide angle, and Paul is saying that love rejoices in the truth, in its fullest sense. We're called to the same. You know, because Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, but in God's economy, he's writing to all of us, all churches, all Christians of all time. And so this is the message for us as well, to hang on to the truth in its fullness and its richness. So, so again, looking at the background here, you know, there were divisions in the Corinthian church. Um, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul is saying, look, hang on to, uh, love is hanging on to the powerful truth that in Christ we are one. And that the bond that Christ brings is more powerful than anything that would separate us. Remember in the church in Corinth, they were saying, well, I belong to Apollos, I belong to a Paul." to Paul. And, and, and Paul, the Apostle Paul is saying to them, look, you know, love is, is hanging on to this truth that in Christ you're one. And yes, you have different experiences and different alignment, alignments and some different allegiances and, and all kinds of differences. But in Christ you are one. And isn't this a message that we so desperately need right now? in our church context, in all throughout the church broadly, and in our church specifically. Uh, you know, as we combat the polarizing forces in our society, you know, whether it be our views on, on masks or vaccines, or we've been having this ongoing conversation about race, and overlaying all of this is the intensity, the polarization around politics, Right? All of this is, is so heated. It's so right now. It's so relevant. And it's this powerful force that wants to pull us apart. So we need the same message that was given to the Corinthian church through Paul's letter. That in Christ we are one. And that doesn't mean that we, we don't talk about the hard things. That's not what that means. In fact... I think because of the powerful oneness we have in Christ, we actually have more capacity potentially to go into the hard topics and have real and profound conversations about them and come out on the other side still loving each other even when we have disagreed. Truth is the call to get into the kind of relationship where the real things are being shared. Now, truth is not relative, which is something that we experience oftentimes in our Western secular culture right now that, you know, we always say, what's your truth? Things like that. As if, as if truth is something that, you know, we just sort of make up, right? And yet, at the same time, it is true, we have experienced different things in life. And understanding each other, knowing each other, is, is being in the kind of relationship where we can hear what one person has experienced throughout the challenge and the difficulty of their life. 
their unique journey, whether that be a journey that's generational or ethnic in orientation or whatever it is, whatever is different, um, to be able to engage in that kind of conversation truthfully is what leads to deeper and deeper relationship. And this is a beautiful reality of rejoicing in the truth in a loving way. Like in Corinth, some of the issues uh, with which we are grappling are ultimately issues of conscience. In other words, there's not just one necessarily one obvious right answer. I mean, maybe when we get to heaven, you know, we'll be able to say, well, this was the right answer. But we're wrestling here on earth and we're trying to understand what is the right thing to do in the midst of some of these really complex issues that we're, we're, we're dealing with. And you know what? We're going to end up sometimes on different sides. That's what happened in Corinth when they tried to figure out what to do with the food sacrifice to idols. And Paul is saying, he's calling them to remember that even when that's the case, you, what you have in Christ, that bond is greater than what is different about you. So remain one. This is one of those moments, I think, as I think about the church more broadly, as I think about our church, and I think about the church more broadly, this is one of those moments, like with the Corinthian church, where we need to fight for our unity as a community. We really need to fight for our unity as a community because the polarizing forces of society are pulling us in all kinds of directions. Let the truth of the bond that we have in Christ. I love that passage from Colossians that Sandra read earlier. Let the truth of the bond that we have in Christ supersede all the reasons that we have to divide. That's what Paul's saying. Now, another part of the background. There was corruption of sexuality in the Corinthian church. Uh, and the Apostle Paul saying, look, hang on to the truth of God's beautiful design for sex. Right? They had, they had uh, sexual uh, brokenness in the community. And remember when we said about truth. Truth wasn't just like thinking the right thoughts. It's about living out the right things. It's, it's about living out the right things in addition to thinking accurate and, and true thoughts. That's what truth is. And, 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 and they had some struggles in the church in Corinth, just like we always have because we're human beings. This is an area where there's tremendous brokenness for every single one of us, the area of sexuality. But we, we hold on to God's beautiful design for sex, all earthly sex being really just a mirror that reflects the divine romance between Christ and the church. See, that's the starting point for all conversation. That, that God is, has, is, is saying something to us by giving us the gift of sexuality. And he calls us to handle this delicate and precious and beautiful gift in a way that reflects his intentions for it. And those intentions are reviewed, excuse me, rooted in what, I, what many call the divine romance between Christ and his bride, the church. If you try to have these conversations about the morality of sexuality, you get really stuck if you lose sight of that big picture. That's true north. Everything flows from 
that. And what, what Paul is saying is that love rejoices in that truth and it hangs on to that truth. Even when the world around you is going in a different direction, love is hanging on to that truth through the midst of it all. And we also need to hang on to that truth in our current climate as well. And that, that doesn't mean we have to be jerks about it, right? But what, we, we have to be honest about our own brokenness when it comes to sin. And we have to be loving and gracious in all the ways that we, that we relate to one another. But at the same time, we hold on to the truths of Scripture. To the things that God says about what it means to be human. And then what it means to live out this gift that's been given to us, which is our sexuality. The Corinthian church was failing to honor those with less. The Corinthian church was failing to honor those with less. So when they would gather together and worship, some had a lot of money, some didn't have any, some had these big feasts, some had nothing to eat. And the ones who had all the money were not sharing with those who had less. And so in the backdrop, in the background of this text, loving truth is, is caring for those with less. And we need to hang on to that as well. And then, of course, most importantly, love hangs on to the message of the gospel, the perfect love of God for us as manifested in Christ, who is willing to lay down his life for us. That's the definition. Remember, Jesus defined love. Somebody be willing to lay down his life for his friend, and then he went and did it. So we need to hang on to that powerful truth and to share that powerful truth. I love some of the things that are happening in our community. I, I, I loved, Pastor Paul, the uh, testimony of those 25 people who were able to go around and, and just, you know, reach 400 homes in our neighborhood just to say we're here and we're your neighbors. Um, I love that. And I, I, I think there are more homes still that we could visit and say hello to and just make a greeting and a connection with. I hope and pray that over this next season, we will hang on to this powerful truth of the perfect love of God more fully than we have. That we'll be more bold in sharing that truth with the people around us. And I want to invite you, I've invited this, I haven't done it in a little while, but we still have this, this little cohort called Sent in Grace on Thursdays. Now we're doing it every other Thursday. And uh, this is for people who are struggling to really maintain a witness in, the, in, the, with the, in their sphere of influence. We just come together and we encourage one another in the gospel and sharing the gospel, sharing this powerful truth with others. And I want to invite you to join us. It's on Zoom. It's 45 minutes, one of the most encouraging times of my week. I'll be posting it in our Facebook in-house page. If you're not part of our Facebook in-house page, you can um, request to be a part of that info at solanochurch.org, many other ways. Um, join us for that. And let God take you on a pathway towards living in greater and greater truth. Okay. Why do we rejoice in the truth. I mean, isn't it interesting that Paul says, it doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. 
That's what love does. It rejoices with the truth. Now, why rejoice, right? Why not it embraces the truth or carries out the truth? Why rejoices with the truth? There's something beyond what I would have thought in that statement, that it rejoices with the truth. Uh, As I read the verse this week and really sat with it, uh, some images come to my mind. One image in particular was the, the image of a stream, a stream, a flow of water. There's a stream of wrongdoing and there's a stream of truth. Two different streams. Or maybe a, a simpler way to think of it is a freeway with, with two sides flowing in other direction, opposite directions. Okay, One flows towards wrongdoing and one flows towards truth. And notice what the text says. It says, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. So it sees wrong, it's, it stands apart from, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing. So that stream, it stands apart from. But love rejoices, and it's, it's, it's the word with has been attached to the word rejoice in, in the second part of the verse. Rejoy, love rejoices with the truth. So it, it holds wrongdoing at a distance, and it, 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 it jumps in the stream of the truth and relishes it and rejoices with it. It swims in it. It swims in the truth. That's what love does. It rejoices, frolics, plays, ah, relaxes in the truth. Okay, now we can do this. When you say something like this, it seems intimidating because you say to yourself, well, but I do wrong things. And yes, you do. Here's the thing about the gospel is that you can uphold the truth. You can uphold what's right either by living it out because God empowers you to do that or sometimes when you fail, well, we all fail quite a bit when we sin, um, we can still uphold the truth by owning our sin. So confession is a way of continuing to uphold the truth, right? Because you're saying, I did the thing that I didn't want to do, which inherently means you still believe that's the right thing to do. So you can honor the truth whether you actually live it out or whether you fail if you live a life of repentance and confession. That's an important point uh, in this whole thing. Sometimes we don't know what the truth is, right? Because life is complicated. In this last season, you know, the last couple of years, it feels to me like life and what's happening around us in society has just become more and more complicated. More and more complicated. And sometimes it's really hard to know what is the truth. Um, relationships are complicated. And then when you're, you're, you're isolated, they become more complicated. And conversations about politics in this extremely polarized moment and race and sexuality and whatever else is on the docket, you know, vaccines and masks, it's, it, it's complicated. It's complicated. It complicates our relationships. It's like I-80 between Albany and Emeryville. Um, that's a stretch of two freeways. Did you know it's not just, it's not just 80? It's 580 and 80 that goes between Albany and Emeryville. And there's two freeways that come from different directions and then depart in different directions. So this is really interesting. You can be traveling in the same direction, in the same lane, on that stretch of freeway, and you are going on 80 east and I-80 west. 
In other words, you're going east and west at the same time. Life feels like that a little bit right now, doesn't it? With all the stuff we're trying to sort through and figure out, and it feels complicated. But did you know, did you notice that they're putting new lights on the freeway? They're erecting these amazing lights, and uh, they're not on yet. At least last time I was driving down, they weren't on yet. But when they come on, it's going to show you where you're going. It's going gonna, it's gonna to make that freeway safer and more clear. And this is what the scriptures say about themselves. That the scriptures are a light unto our path. So if, we're, if, if the direction is confused and it's complicated, what do we need to do? We need to go back to the word of God. We need more scripture. If you want to know um, what to rejoice in, what, what am I, you know, I don't even know what to rejoice in. Study the Bible. Jesus said, thy word is truth. The psalmists say, thy word is a lamp unto my feet. So when the navigational element of truth is, is confused, go to the word. Now here's why I think the Apostle Paul says rejoice in the truth. When you stand in the truth, you are standing in the stream whose ultimate end is heaven itself. You're standing in the stream of facts and actions and morals whose ultimate end is heaven itself. All the lies and the falsehoods will eventually be stripped away. And what's will be left, what will be left is the truth. Right? That's how the scripture talks about itself. The truth will be what's standing when everything else is burned away. So it's like when you're standing in the stream of the truth, you're bringing an element of heaven into the moment right now. And that's why it induces joy. Because heaven is here with us when we're in the truth. Another way that the Bible talks about this is the presence of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is already here and yet not yet fully here. We, we await the future fulfillment of the kingdom of God. George Ladd wrote a book called The Presence of the Future. The Presence of the Future. When we stand in the stream of truth, when we live in the truth, when we live in the truth, we are experiencing, we are living into the future. The kingdom of God is with us already. Even if the truth seems crazy to the world around us. Even if the truth seems crazy to the world around us. It's what's going to last. We're standing in the stream that's directly connected to God's ultimate plan for all that he's created. When we stand in the truth. And that is what brings joy. That's what brings joy. Do you want heaven Now you want the presence of the future now? Then stand in the truth. And you will have the joy of already being connected. Rejoice in the truth because you realize that the truth is a piece of heaven here and now. And you want more and more of that. The truth is a river flowing into eternal things. And just like 
you know, with that friend I told you about, the truth opened a door to transformation and healing. And that's what the truth does in our lives as well. So the invitation to rejoice in the truth is the invitation to celebrate the everlasting things right now. To celebrate the everlasting things right now. C.S. Lewis, let me finish with this. In the Chronicles of Narnia, um, you know, there's this, in, in the silver chair, there's this, the book called The Silver Chair, there's this fictional witch, and she's in process of trying to convince the children that this fallen, broken world that they're in is the only world that there is. That there isn't something better beyond where they are right now. And so she sort of puts a spell on them. And she plays the mandolin. Mandolin. And this spell kind of settles on them and it causes them to forget that there is a supernatural realm. It causes them to forget the eternal things. It causes them to forget in what we've been talking about, sort of the end of the stream of truth, which which is heaven. And the conversation goes like this. She puts the spell on them and they say, the kids say, no, I suppose that the other world must be all a dream. Yes, it's all a dream, said the witch, always thrumming. Yes, all a dream, said Jill. There never was such a world, said the witch. No, said Jill and Scrub, never was such a world. There never was any world but mine, said the witch. There never was any world but yours, said they. Don't let that world be stolen from you. Live in the truth, even when it runs contrary to what's happening in this world. Rejoice in the truth because that is what is going to last. God, would you help us? There's a lot here that we've looked at in this passage. It's big, it's powerful, it's overwhelming, it has implications for our lives. We need you desperately, Lord, to to help us to take your truth and cause it to flow into all of the parts of our being have that reminder, that memory that there is eternal life and that it is glorious and wonderful and that living in that reality now makes us sometimes look strange to the world, but that's okay because that's what's going to last. And in fact, it's that truth that becomes the doorway, the gateway to healing for ourselves and for the people around us. So, help us. Help us, Lord, to rejoice in the truth, we pray. In Jesus' name.